Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Well, Happy New Year to all of you, and welcome to my next season of 2022. I'm delighted to continue to do this each year, and I want to thank you always for listening. My guest today is Walter Wolf. Welcome to the show, Walter. Marsha, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and Happy New Year to you, and I'm honored to be the first show of 2021, so thank you. No, 2022. See how oh, you said 2021? Isn't it? Because you oh know what? God, what the believe. heck happened last year, right? Holy cow. Yeah. So well, that's I'm okay. Still stuck in it, so there you go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's, I love that. So just for those of you listening, um, this, this is an example of what happens when you do live podcasting with somebody you really enjoy because there's trust, there's enthusiasm, and there's friendship involved here. So let me just tell you, Walter went from being a Hollywood producer to an interventionist, and he is the founder of The Right Rehab and the author of The Right Rehab, and we're going to be talking about that today. But before we get to that part, just just give us a little peek into telling us a little bit about your background, Walter. Well, I... Um... I'm actually the luckiest person that I, who I know. I am, uh, I've been able to run my life or live my life, I should say, in a way that I have actually never worked a day in my life. And the reason I can say that is I've just absolutely adored and I've loved everything that I have done uh, as a career in my life. The longest one being in the entertainment business, being a producer, and I produce mainly for features and also some television as well. But it was uh, it, it, traveling, I mean, literally traveling all over the world and, and doing productions all over the world and, mm-hmm. and basically making new friends and, you know, putting together a new family, as we, as a, as we put it, when you do a picture. But, uh, and, but that all changed. And that all changed uh, 11 years ago. When it did. I... Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, when I got that phone call at 4.30 in the morning uh, telling me that a family member of mine was in crisis due to addiction, and I had not a clue what to do. I didn't know anything about addiction. I didn't know anything. I knew even less about treatment. So, But I did know somebody who did know. And that was a lifelong friend of mine who had been in recovery for 30 years. He, uh, he was a recovering heroin addict. And he also happened to be a celebrity, as we say. He's somebody who had written some bestsellers. He was an actor. He was a very well-known personality. But also he was very well-known within the Los Angeles recovery community. And I, he was my very first call. And he said to me, well, Walter, I'm going to uh, be standing by for a call from 
Walt, uh, Walter Quinn at uh, Cumberland Heights, and, and he's going to take care of you. I said, okay, so next thing I know, now, remind you, this is now 6.30 in the morning in L.A. time, and I get a call from Walt, and the next thing I know is that with, within 24 hours, my loved one is sitting in detox at one of the finest rehabs on the planet. So uh, I, I was very, very lucky. That's that's amazing, and you know when I it's funny how words and thoughts enter come in and out of our our minds for me, and I can remember watching intervention as a regular viewer of that show. I don't even know how many years ago that show was on, but I I absolutely remember being captivated by how the interventionist worked with the person that had the addiction problem and with that person's family members and how some activities ended up being very successful and some not so much. But um, so I, I'm, I'm familiar with watching that particular show, so I'm visualizing this when you talk. You you said you started the right rehab. Is it, Did you start... Um, your business in 2011? Well, no, I did not. I, I still was working in the business until about 2013. And I see. what happened was that people started calling me saying, hey, Walter, I heard about you and your son. Uh, I got the same problem. Uh, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And uh, so then because of my friend, uh, I was able to meet the the people of the best, uh, highest reputation and, and ethics in the recovery community and the treatment world. And I started helping get people into the right program for that particular person, for that particular individual. And then I really started, I, I, I loved it. I, I just loved it. It was very fulfilling. It was very rewarding in the sense that the, the thing that sort of made it whole for me, that really kind of kicked it off, was I remember early in our, my family's journey through treatment and, and the beginnings of uh, my loved one's recovery, um, there was someone also in recovery who was just doing everything in the world to help, help us out. And I remember I, I said to her, I, I said, uh, Sarah, I, you know, we hardly know each other. We just met. But I'm just, I'm just blown away by you know, your attention and your kindness and, and you're doing everything in the world to help us. And I, I just wanted to say, I, I can't thank you enough for this. And she said, listen, Walter, please understand that, you know, part of, of my recovery is helping you. And, and mm-hmm. I, that really hit me because, it, mm-hmm. because people in recovery, uh, they uh, find, I, in my experience anyway, it, it's constant paying it forward, constant paying it forward. And that really struck me. It really did. And uh, it's something which I wish uh, more people did, actually, in their lives. So, so what I started doing was I started helping people get into, uh, into the right rehab. And I loved it so much, I stopped what I was doing in the business, and, I, and I'm now doing this full time. And you mentioned intervention. Um, mm-hmm. the, um, the intervention, uh, good on them for doing the show. I thought, you know, good on them because it makes many, many more people aware of substance use disorders and, and an intervention. Most important, there is something you can do about it, which is, you know, that's good on them for doing that show. 
um, the intervention basically is, and I, and, and I do interventions you know, with people all over the country, and the one thing that intervention is really about, when you get down to it, it's about one thing. It's about leverage. It's about how is it that you can get somebody to, how is it that you can get somebody to see that going to treatment is the best thing that that person can do at that particular moment. And there are all different kinds of ways to make that happen. But at the end of the day, it's really about leverage. Wow. If that makes sense. I, <laughs> it, it does. Um, it, it really does make sense. And I, I commend you. Um, and I know you're just speaking about paying it forward. If it hadn't been for that friend, doing what he did for you and for you recognizing and appreciating what that meant to your family. It, it's almost like, okay, so I get this. So how can well, I it goes, it, it, go it goes both ways? Than that, though. Right? It goes further okay. than that, though, Marsha, because I started thinking about what I was lucky. What about all the people around the country uh, who don't? have a friend who knows what to do. What do they do? And that's why you have a lot of people will say, will say to me, oh, my God, I wish I knew you a year ago. I mean, because mm-hmm. they, <clears throat> they find a rehab, you know, it's on Google or it's somebody mentioned it to them. And the next thing you know, um, their money, that, there's, that the, the treatment for which they paid really wasn't treatment. They've, they've been grifted. They've, they've mm. uh, been fooled. And because, you know, Marsha, this is a, the treatment industry is a $42 billion a year industry, and it wow. is unregulated, and that means that <clears throat> there are a lot of imposters. And what happens is, is that um, it take, this is really devious, and it's really insidious, because these people separate families from their money, especially families who don't have a lot of money to begin, and they just they – just, they just continue, they, they extend the torture to which this, uh, this family is going. And I'll give you one example. I, sure. I had a family come into to my office I, at the beginning of what I was doing and of my business, and, and about nine of them walked into my office, nine people, one family. And uh, there was a young man, 21-year-old, who needed treatment for alcoholism. And one of the uncles speaks up right away, and he says, now, listen, I just looked up rehab, uh, rehabs, and hundreds of them showed up on Google. Now, why are we hiring you? And I, and I looked at him, hmm. and I said, well, actually, actually you're right, there, there's, but there's actually 16,000 treatment programs in this country. Now, tell me, which is the right one for your nephew? Well, there was a large uh, moment of silence. And the guy looks at me and says, huh, good point. Okay, what do you got? <laughs> so well, I yes. but that's what it's about. You know, you can go from your house to my house on many different roads, but there might be a better road to do it. And how do you know? You put in Google search and you put in a map, and it's like, oh, you go this way, you go that way, you go this <clears> way, that <throat> way. But it's like, yeah, but, but I don't know if that's the right way. And I and I hear what you're saying. It's like all these choices. You're already in a family with crisis to start with, 
do you really want to just eeny, meeny, miny, mo, or do you want that someone that understands the dynamics of this world and can say, based on this or based on that, I believe that this might be a, a good option for you, regardless of where you live, because you, you help people that don't necessarily come into your office. Is that correct? Most of my clients I never meet. I mean, 90% of my exactly. clients I never meet them at all. So they're all over the country. Right. But, but, what's, but to add on to what you just said, Marsha, it's not really the right road. It's the right road for you, okay? Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to treatment, for instance, most people don't know this. And because and how many times have people told me, well, so-and-so told me to go to that rehab because a friend of theirs went and they said it was really good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, well, okay. Let me ask you, what was its licensure? Uh, excuse me? Well, what was the licensure of the, of the facility? What were, what, what, for what were they licensed by the state? Well, and they haven't a clue. And the reason I bring that up is the right facility is the one that knows how to treat a particular diagnosis of that individual. And then you have all the other factors involved, all the other personal factors involved, such as what's the age of the individual? Is the individual uh, employed or unemployed, a member of, you know, a, a member of a service, you know, in the Army or Navy or, or, or mm-hmm. even a veteran or even a first responder or even a lawyer or a doctor or a pilot? Because what it means is that there are specific programs tailored for exactly those kinds of people. And but most important is what is the individual's diagnosis? And I bring that up because there really are four diagnoses. One diagnosis is just pure uh, substance use disorder. The second one is just pure mental disorder. But the next two are really the most prevalent and the most important ones. And that is, it's pri- is it primary substance use disorder, secondary mental disorder, or is it primary mental disorder, secondary substance use disorder. In other words, most people who have a substance use disorder, most of them between, the government says between 40 and 60%, in my experience it's about 80%, but of those people have a mental disorder along with a a substance use disorder. The question is, which one is driving the other? So if it's somebody who has a primary mental disorder and secondary substance use disorder, I find them a facility whose licensure matches that individual's diagnosis. And that's really, really important. And then along with the other uh, personal factors involved, as well as that person's resources. Is that person going to use private pay? Is that person going to use insurance? And I could talk to you all day about insurance, Marcia, but um, Mm -hmm. there's a lot involved in determining whether a facility is a right one for an individual or not. And what I do is I always provide at least four options for that individual, at least. So talk, and, you know, talk about that. All over. Tell, us a, tell us about some of those services that you provide. That, I think that would be very interesting. And let me interrupt you just quickly to say, for those of you that are listening to this and you're trying to, capture everything that Walter is saying, I would like to direct you to his website, which is the www's obvious, therightrehab.com. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Somebody's going, God, I need to, I need to, I need to look at this. So let's talk about those services that, that you provide. Well, the 
they are, uh, by and large, they are, when somebody uh, contacts me, um, I try to find out, I find out as much information about that individual as possible. One of the first questions I ask is, does the individual have a diagnosis? And, and if they do, well, that's, that's, very, that's very helpful to me because right away that tells me, okay, here are the kinds of places for which I should be looking. If the individual does not have a diagnosis, well, then I try to get a diagnosis from a professional. Now, I'm not the one who does the, profession, does the diagnosis. The diagnosis must be done from a licensed, <clears throat> certified therapist or, or physician, um, but it has to be somebody who is properly licensed in that particular field, and that can be done any number of ways. Um, most of the time, it's done with a facility having what's called an over-the-phone assessment with an individual to find out, okay, what's really going on with that individual? And I always tell uh, people, uh, families or friends, uh, like when that individual is doing an over-the-phone assessment, get out of the room. Let that person be by him or herself because many times they, are, they don't say everything that's going on, and it's, in, it's absolutely imperative that they can, can say everything to the assessor um, and because sometimes they are, uh, they'll withhold some information so that they're not embarrassed in front of the other individual. Or most of the time, if it's a family member, well, this person has been lying to that family member for so long. And all of a sudden to confess that all this stuff that that individual has been doing and the family member says, oh, my God, that guy's been it's my son, my daughter. You've been lying to me the whole time. Yeah, well, of course he, he or she has. They're, they're, it's their addiction that, that's driving your, your, your loved one. So nonetheless. Um, and May I interrupt time, you? May I interrupt you right there? Because if I'm curious about this, maybe somebody that's listening is also curious about this because I, I would like to clarify something. So when there's an over-the-phone assessment, is that with the person? Is that with the person that is having an addiction issue, or is it their family member is so concerned that they're trying to get that person into treatment? Who is on the assessment? That's that would be what right. I'd be curious to know. Well, that's a very good question, and it's my fault for not making that clear in the beginning. It's with the individual who who is suffering from the malady, who is suffering from either the addiction and or the mental disorder, and and it's important that the individual say everything to the person who's who is doing the uh, doing doing the assessment. And by the way, there's one thing I should mention that I've been remiss uh, about. I've been remiss about this, and that is uh, what. And the reason why you and I are talking is because all this information which I'm discussing with you, uh, all this information has never been in one place. It's never been accessible. Because when I had uh, that issue, when I had a family member in crisis, I immediately said, well, there's got to be a book or there's got to be a guy that I can look at that tells me what is addiction, what is treatment, and how it got. And there wasn't. And so the, the, the bottom line here is that the book that, I, that was released past, this past November, on November 15th, is a book called The Right Rehab. And that is my reaction to this is the book that I needed when I was in crisis. 
And since it didn't exist, I went ahead and decided to write it myself. And fortunately for me, the professionals who have uh, read this book, they all without question say this is the best tool that they've ever read when it comes to determining what is treatment and how do you get it. And the book was written for people, you know, whether one lives on Park Avenue or Skid Row. I explain in this book how you get the treatment, the right treatment, that's meant for you, no matter your resources. You, can, you have all the resources in the world or you have none. There are treatment programs for everyone. And I get very granular in this book. And I explain exactly how you get treatment, whether it's private pay or whether it's your private insurance or whether it's uh, public assistance or, or whether it's Medicaid or if it's Medicare. And I explain to people, if they don't have those sources, how you can get them. So it all has it, it, it yeah, because I don't believe in criticizing until you, sure. unless you have something to, to, to ameliorate it, you have a suggestion to fix it. So if you've so, got so a family member, I just, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you again, but I, I, I no, want to no, be clear ahead. about this. So you've got this son, daughter, husband, wife. They clearly have an addiction or mental health issue, but they don't want help. You want help for them, but they don't want help. And so you have a crisis because they don't want the help. So when you do this over-the-phone assessment, it really, if I understand what you're saying, it's not designed for me, the parent, or me, the spouse. That would be something different. You are really looking to say, I need to speak to the person that's having this crisis. I need to be able to say to you where you're sitting privately or your mom, your dad, your spouse is not in the room, let's just talk here, you and me. It's just the two of us. So is, do I have that correct? I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. You have it absolutely correct. But, however, there's something that has to happen before that occurs. Because if the individual is in denial or if the individual right. is not willing to go, well, then we have to devise a plan or as otherwise known as an intervention of how to make that happen. And, and I always tell families it all depends upon the situation. The one situation which is the, versus the easiest uh, way to get somebody to treatment is when you have a 20-something or 30-something who, you know, basically is a failure to launch. That individual is still living at home. That individual either sometimes has a job or most of the time doesn't have a job or they can't keep a job. But, and this person uh, is basically um, killing him or herself. E- eventually, that person most likely will die if something isn't done, especially depending upon the substance he, he or she is using. But the bottom line is, is that the family has to get that person to treatment. And there are two different ways of doing it number of different ways. Well, if somebody has versus criminal justice issues, so if that person has a DUI 
or any other type of misdemeanor or even a felony as long as it's nonviolent. It is, I work with defense attorneys all the time. It's remarkable how easy it is to get somebody the treatment if that person is looking at incarceration. Because what it does is that when, when I get a person to treatment, it, it, and it's, a year, it's part of a year-long treatment plan, so that when the judge and the prosecutor, when they see what we're doing and they understand, okay, it's a year-long plan, and they, I've never, ever, ever had the court or the prosecutor say, no, I want that person back here, and I want that person in jail. That has never happened. Because most of these people understand there are way too many people in jail to begin, and that treatment is exactly what is needed in this case to help this individual. The other way to do it is if you have an individual living at home, well, there's a basically what you have to do is you have to get the family to agree. You have to have the family as a, as a unit, and uh, whether it's a large family or a small family, Everybody agrees, okay, this is what we have to do. We have to get so-and-so to treatment. And there's one way to do that, and that is we go to the individual and say, um, listen, um, Johnny, uh, we went ahead and we, um, your family is offering you two options. One option is you go to this rehab. And by then, I, the family has already hired me. I already have four places standing by for this mm-hmm. individual. And so we, we explained, you, here's, your family is going to stand behind you 100% if you go to this facility. They will do everything in the world to support you. Um, and if you decide not to go, well, pack your bags or whatever you want, and let's get in the car because we're going to find you another place to live. The bottom line is, is that this person is either – whatever – support which has been enabling that individual to continue his or her addiction is now being cut off and whether it's like you can't live in the house anymore uh, i'm not giving you money anymore i am not um, paying for your car anymore i'm not paying for your cell phone i mean it stops now and i always tell families you know this type of intervention it could take six minutes six hours six days six weeks. It could take six months. But eventually, I've never had anybody say no at the end of the day. And ne- never. And, but, and then there's another kind of intervention as well, which is not quite as confrontational. But the bottom line is that's the type of intervention which has the most leverage. The, the least amount of leverage you have is when you have an individual who you know, has a job, uh, lives independently, is supporting him or herself, and has resources. Um, I'll tell you something, Marsha. Emotions have nothing to do with this because addiction will do everything in the world to defend itself. So when you say to that person, look at what you're doing. You're destroying all your relationships. All your friends are leaving you. You know what? It doesn't matter because the addiction doesn't care. And that's why addiction is so insidious. So that is the type of person that is the most difficult to get to rehab. It isn't until that person either loses all his or her money, gets kicked out of wherever they're living, loses their job. But also, you know, a lot of times there's a third type of intervention, and that is the one where it's called criminal justice 
Because eventually you're going to have a DUI. Eventually you're going to commit some type of misdemeanor or, God forbid, some type of felony. God forbid you're going to kill somebody when you're driving on the road when you're wasted. Or, you know, you could easily kill yourself. So there are all types of issues involved. But that sort of runs the gamut from, like, the one with the most amount of leverage to the one with the least amount of leverage. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yes, yes. So... I'm I'm listening to this and I'm trying to take all of this in and I guess what I'm wondering is um is there a right fit for a treatment for everyone? I I presume that you're going to say no because everybody brings their own bags to the to the to the to the to the, to the rehab. <clears throat> there is a right fit for everyone. There is. Here's the there issue. Is. Yes, okay. There is. Yes, there is. My first is does everybody have to go to treatment? No. I know plenty of people who never stepped foot inside of a rehab, and yet they've been sober for 25, 30 years. And that's because for that individual, they don't need residential treatment. They started going to 12-step meetings, started going to either AA or NA meetings, and it, it, and it fits that individual. Now, a lot of individuals, they need more than that. They need uh, lots of what's called evidence-based treatment. And that's what they need. And then you want to go down a little bit more. Okay, what kind of place is it to where they're going? Are they an EMT or a paramedic? Do they need to be with other first responders? Most of the time they do because somebody like that is usually using substances as a reaction to trauma in his or her Mm -hmm. life. So, But my, my, my bottom line is this. There is a solution out there for people. It's just that you have to, those people have to know what those options are. Sure. And up until, up, you know, that's why I wrote my book is to let people know, do you have to go to treatment? Hell no. It all depends mm-hmm. upon the individual, but here is how you find the right treatment for you. And fortunately I've had a lot of people say that this book is a really the best tool that they've ever seen in doing exactly that. Just as one, one aside, I had some, uh, an admissions person from a rehab where I send people frequently call me and say, you won't believe what just happened. It said, I just admitted somebody, and the mother was bringing her 19-year-old son, and the mother just had one question, one question after another. And you know what she was doing? She had my book open in front of her, and she was reading all the questions that I had put into my book of like, how do you know you're sending somebody to the right rehab or not? How do you determine which place is real? How do you determine which place is not real? And she was reading those questions in the book. How, wow. how bizarre is that? Yeah, that and that's, that is so exceptional that you were able to, I mean, you can't even put a price on that kind of service. Because as you said, it's not like you go to the bookshelf or you go to Amazon and you're going to find 12,000 books that offer what you're talking about. Because it sounds to me you are helping the, the addicted person and that addicted person's family helping that addicted person. And I know people that have worked, um, that have worked um, narc, um, AA, that that have 30 years sobriety. 
they had something major happen that made them just like, this is it, and have never never fallen off. Some people work the program because they work the program every day. Some people don't really work the program anymore, but it was what they needed as opposed to going to a center, which is what you're saying, right? Because there's two kinds of choices. You can do this um, without having to go into a detox center. Am I I right? You're absolutely right. And the people who started AA, I swear to you, they deserved, if they were alive today, they would get a Nobel Peace Prize right away. Mm. I can't believe how influential, how many lives, how many families that AA has saved. It is believable. It is remarkable. How long have they been around? I I don't even know. Well, I know the story, uh, it was Bill Wilson and Bob, oh gosh, I'm being so, the name is escaping me at the moment. That's okay. Actually, I have I have the story in my book, by the way, but yes. um, they, um, it was really, it was really in the, in the fifties when it really, mm-hmm. really started to pick up steam. And, and also one thing that helped was that in the 1950s is what I think it was 56. I think it was um, when the government finally relented and said that, yes, alcoholism is a disease. Because uh, up until then, and especially it still is occurring today, there's a stigma behind addiction. And that is people still believe that addiction is a choice and that it's usually a choice made by people with very low character and very low morals. Well, guess what? That's not the way it works. It is a disease. And, there may, and one of the reasons, it, it, addiction is the creation of one's environment and one's genetics. And genetics plays an incredibly important role as to whether someone is suffering from disease of, of addiction or not. Because when there is addiction in someone's family, on either side, okay, that, that, is, that ups the propensity of someone get also getting the gene. Does it mean that everyone does? No, it does not. But it means the likelihood is greater than if it wasn't there. And, and one thing I should mention, too, and that is it's called relapse, is about 60% of people who go to rehab relapse within 12 months of discharge. Okay? Now, within 12 a lot months. Of people okay. okay. Within 12 months. And a lot of people are going to say, well, great. Well, that treatment did a lot of good. Look, that, that person, he's already, or she, they're already using it again. No, mm-hmm. it's not a disaster. It doesn't mean treatment didn't work. When, what it means is that what had been working before is no longer working. And what we have to do is we have to find out what it is that's different, that what it is that's not working, and then change it. We tweak it. Sometimes it means going back to treatment. Most of the time it does not. It could be something as simple as, you know, he's going to the wrong 12-step meetings. Because, you know, there are meetings that are right for somebody, and there's some meetings that are not right for somebody. Mm-hmm. And the, or it could be that that person is not living in the right sober living environment. It could be any number of issues. It could be that that person went to a rehab that really wasn't the right rehab for that particular person. It could be that the problem with this individual is really it's trauma. So what I want, to, I want people to realize that as a disease, as a chronic brain disease, uh, addiction is very similar to other 
chronic diseases such as diabetes, such as hypertension, such as asthma. That means that those diseases right there have anywhere from a 50% to 70% occurrence of relapse. And addiction is there at 60%. Now, just because somebody, for instance, has to have different kind of medication or change the medication or change something in their treatment when they're a diabetic, does that mean that, diabetes, that their treatment is a failure? No, it doesn't. It just means that there needs to be adjustments. It's the same thing with addiction. It's the exact same thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it it does, and I I'm I'm thinking about people that I know, and and I believe you said something about sometimes. Did did you actually use the word hereditary? Because I'm trying oh, yeah. to take notes while you're talking. So you used the word hereditary, and oh, yeah. I'm thinking about people that I know that you know. Yes, he's an alcoholic, sober, four years. Was his dad an al- alcoholic? Yes. Did he ever get sober? Not really. He just functioned. He went to work, but he was always drunk at home. And um, and so it's it's interesting because that made me think. Well, you hadn't really thought of it that way before. That I mean, and it doesn't mean that just because your dad or your mom was an alcoholic, that you are going to be an alcoholic. I mean, we're, we would agree that that's not necessarily true. Correct. Absolutely true. Absolutely right. true. Without because question. of the right, because of the three of the three sons, two don't drink, and they maybe drink. I don't even. I think actually they don't drink at all, based on the experience with the brother that did, and the brother that did. Um, fortunately for him, his marriage did survive. His children did stay by him. And I believe he did go into a detox or or treatment center for just a short period of time. But um, now he's a sponsor. And I know people that I can, I know other people that say not only did they go through the program 30 plus years ago, but they are the sponsor now for others through AA to help them. And um, I don't think, depending upon everyone's lifestyle and everybody's lifestyles are not the same, you may personally may or may not know somebody that is suffering from this because, as you said, there's mental, there's mental illness involved here as, as well as disease. And um, it's kind of scary, you know, but what's, what's promising and what you recognize, Walter, and what, what makes this so um, positive, because I don't want to spin this down a rabbit hole, what makes this so positive is that there are options now that maybe were not there, you know, 30 years ago and no 20 years ago. Well, right? no question about that, uh, Marcia, but there's one ingredient. There's one thing that I've yet to mention, and that What's is that? a lot of people will say, well, so-and-so, my gosh. It, sometimes it takes multiple years, multiple treatment. Uh, uh, stages in order for somebody to finally stay sober. and uh, But frequently, it only takes once. The bottom line is this. It's really up to the individual. And uh, the individual is the one who finally, like, for instance, in an intervention, I've had people hate me. They hate me when I do an intervention. Mm-hmm. 
the addiction hates me because I'm disrupting the addiction's life. And the individual hates me. He or she wants to continue his or her addiction. Right. I've had situations where I've, like, I'll have within, I'll send that person away, for instance, to a 90-day treatment, and I'll get a call at day 45. And this person will call me and say, hey, Walter, it's, uh, it's Ben. I said, hey, Ben, my gosh, how are you? Now, remember, this, this person hates me, hates me. Mm-hmm. And I'll get, and this happens several times. And that person will say, Walter, I just want you to know that I love you, that you saved my life. And now, let me be, that's because that person decided to get sober and stay sober. It's not me. I didn't save anybody's life. The only thing I did was just open a few doors for that individual. It's Mm -hmm. the individual is the one who decides to save his or her life and his family's life. And it's wondrous when people finally get it, when they finally understand. Like my loved one, it, it took five years, and it took three different stays. And, and I always tell parents of, of uh, Gen Xers, I say, hey, get ready. Relapse is part of the journey. It, it just is. And that doesn't mean treatment failed. It's just the way that it is. Now, and that person eventually has to decide to get to stay sober him or herself. There's one thing that I haven't mentioned yet, and that is how prevalent mental disorders and substance use disorders are in our society. Yes, please. And, and this pandemic has made it a lot worse. For instance, in 2020, <clears throat> there were 74 million people over the age of 18, 30% of the people over 18, they had a mental disorder or a substance use disorder. 74 million. Okay. Over the age now, of 18, substance or mental? Right. That, that, is, that, is, that is, excuse me, over the age of 12, my, my mistake. Over the age oh, of 12. Oh, over the excuse age me. of 74 okay. million over the age of 12 that, have had either that, a that substance or mental Wow, just in this past year? Yeah. Yes, it's, it's, it, that was the figures in 2020. Okay, so, <clears throat> so what I'm saying, and, 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 if, you, and if you figure that uh, over 40 million people, that's 14.5% of people 12 and over, they um, have uh, a substance use disorder from either illicit drugs, alcohol, or even both. That's forty million. Two years, few years ago, Marcia, it was only it was only it was twenty million. Now it's forty point three. I mean, what the devil is going is going on? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean that's more the the seventy four million persons. That is more. That is more than the population of California, Oregon, Washington, Montana, Idaho, and Nevada altogether. It's more than that. That is what's happening in our country. And, and, and that's why treatment is so important in our country, and it's not getting the attention it deserves. If there were ever a magic bullet in how do we solve this issue with addiction and mental disorders, <clears throat> it's treatment. Are you going to save everybody? No. A lot of people don't want to go, you know, especially older males. They are very resistant to going to treatment, even if you offer it to them. And, uh, but you have to, this is an issue that you have to chip away at it. 
It's not going to happen all at once. You have to chip away at it. And if and one way to make treatment available to people and possible is through insurance. And versus <clears throat> there are 12 states in this country right now that have not expanded Medicaid. And when I say expand, what I mean is expand Medicaid in the way that you loosen the, the, uh, the boundaries that will let people take advantage of a Medicaid insurance policy so they can get treatment, especially single males. Okay. And if they can get treatment, it's been proven time and time again. And if people don't believe me, you better look at my website and call me, and I will show you that there are, uh, there are studies after – there's a study after study that proves that for every dollar that's spent for treatment returns anywhere from a $4 to $7 to up to over $1,000 in net benefits. And if you don't believe me, I'll show you the studies. Now, the state of Washington, that is the one state in our nation that gets it more than any other state. And that is, they are very smart about what they're doing. Every time the legislature passes a bill, they will give it to, uh, or even before they pass it, they will give it to a, a government agency. And what they do is they dissect this bill. It's like the CBO. It's the Congressional Budget Office for the state of Washington, okay? And what they do is they come out like, here are, the econo- are there economic benefits to this particular bill. They have proven that treatment is consistently a net benefit to the state of Washington. And, and, and they have a website. They up, update it in real time. And it shows you on a daily basis how much money the state of Washington has been saving and the net benefits because of treatment that they are offering. And I want people to understand something. How many times do you hear people say, why should I give my hard-earned dollars to that person when, uh, to get treatment when that person deserves what he or she is getting? Mm-hmm. That person doesn't have you know, and, and I'm going to tell you something. I'll tell you why that's not a smart thing to say. And that is because most people, if you were able to give treatment to those people, there's something really odd that happens. And that is that person gets well. If that person mm-hmm. wants to get sober, most of them do. And what does that person do? That person gets a job. What does that mean? That person now becomes a taxpayer. Now, when that person has a job and is a taxpayer, they are now contributing to the economy of our nation. So the bottom line is this, is that if you want a healthy economy, you have to have healthy citizens. And so when somebody says, why should I give my hard-earned money? Well, guess what? Here's another issue that most people don't know. In 2019, the government spent $1.697 trillion on insurance. And when I say on insurance, they subsidize everybody's insurance. I mean everybody. I mean if you have, you're paying for your own private insurance, if you are an employee of a company who offers you an insurance company, that is all being subsidized by the United States government. And they do it because they see a benefit in helping people get and stay healthy. It's the same principle 
If you were to help somebody who is not healthy get healthy, there's a positive benefit to that. Yeah, I, it's 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 um, mind-boggling. I think um, what you're speaking about and the ramifications that trickle down that you're that you're talking about. Um, not to mention, uh, maybe it's just the mom in me, but um, <laughs> you know the emotional knowing that your loved one, your 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 child, your spouse, your sibling, or whatever has turned around and they are now like you say productive and 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 it it didn't happen overnight there there might be reasons why this addiction happened whether it was you know because of hereditary or life circumstances PTSD you know i imagine that you you see a lot of this in military people that have you know witnessed things that that none of us could ever imagine and they just want to bury it and they bury it in a way that does that makes them what disconnect i suppose i don't know i've never i don't know what addiction is like personally so i can't speak from experience but i would imagine that when you come out on the other side everyone comes out a winner hopefully not just that that person that's beat the addiction but the reunification of that family that maybe stepped away because they just couldn't deal with that person any longer. And I'd like to think that that happens. I, I'd like to think that, I, I mean, I'd, I'd like you to tell me that when people do find themselves sober that some of these unific- reunifications do happen. Would I be right about that? No, not at all. You're absolutely correct. But I want to make sure okay. that, Pete, that your listeners realize that it's never 100%. Yeah. It's never 100%. There's no you guarantee. Want it to be. There's no guarantee. Right. There's right. no guarantee. And <clears throat> but we know one thing. What's that? If you don't give the part person the opportunity, it will never happen. Right. Right. And there are obstacles along the way. I I'm certain of that, right? I mean, it it's not just seamless. There <clears throat> there are obstacles whether it's the family because I'd like to think that part of this intervention um, and this treatment process that you have also does something that helps that parent or spouse as well, right? You just brought up one of the most important points. Please. You you just, absolutely, you just said something so, so salient, and that is this, and this is what I tell families. Don't expect your loved one to go away to treatment 30, 60, 90 days, 120 days, and expect to come home, quote, unquote, fixed. Because a big reason why that person is the way that he or she is is because of the family. You can't have that person go away, get treatment, and come back and into the exact same environment that he or she left and expect that person to stay in recovery. It ain't going to happen. So what I say to families is that while your son or daughter is in treatment and learning how to you know, stay, get sober, stay sober, and, and start living a life of recovery, so do you. So does the family. And that's why the really good rehabs, they will have what's called FBT, Family Behavioral Therapy. And that means that they at least once a week 
have a session with the therapist, the individual, and the, and the individual's family. And then, <clears throat> but the family is, itself has to also go further, and that is they have to have either a group therapy session, you know, on a regular basis, once a week, twice a week, and it can be a, a, a group of them with a therapist, or it can be, let's say, the mother having his or her own therapist, excuse me, the mother having her own therapist, the father having their own, own therapist. They can also do it online. My point is the following, is that no matter how it occurs, the family has to be proactive as well, because Many times, when you, when you know an individual who is going through um, addiction treatment, and when you meet the family, I can't tell you how many times, you say to yourself, oh, oh okay, I get it. I get it. Mm-hmm. I know why he or she is the way they are. And that is because there's a behavior going on that needs modification. And not only is it with the individual, but it has to be with the individual's family as well. Yeah, I would think so. And wow, so so what you were saying is that the that the behavior needs modification not only for the individual but for the family as well. That is correct because yeah. that person cannot come back to the exact same environment that he or she left. That's why. And that's why, for instance, I say many times to families, when they have somebody that's in the 20s or even the 30s um, uh, call, especially in the 20s, uh, when they're on the phone, and I always say, listen, the phone call you want is when your child calls and says, Mom, Dad, I'm not coming home. That's the call you want. Because that means that your child has finally become part of an environment, part of a community that supports his or her sobriety and vice versa. And because we, we call home what is called the land of triggers. So um, that person comes home and and says, Oh, that's where I used to buy my drugs. Oh, and, and there's a certain aroma. Oh, that reminds me of when I used to do drugs. Oh, that's the person from whom I used, to, I used to do drugs with that person. You've got to get the individual away. And it's, most of it is subconscious. He or she doesn't even know that it's happening. I remember one time when I took a client um, to a detox unit that was in a hospital on the south side of town. And as we get out of the car, the individual uh, looks around and says, huh, this is where I used to buy my drugs. Guess what? I don't take people to that, rehab, to that detox anymore. I just, mm-hmm. I just don't. Right. My point is, is that the, it's so much better. The individual has such a better, uh, better odds of getting sober, staying sober, and finally learning how to live a life of sobri- of recovery. Which, by the way, my friends in recovery say it takes up to five years. The, the Surgeon General also says that it takes five years of sobriety for someone with uh, in an in recovery from a substance use disorder to have the same odds <clears throat> of any individual who's never had a substance use disorder. But we all have a 15% chance of have developing a substance use disorder. It's 15%. And when an individual has been able to maintain sobriety for five years, that's when the, you know, the physicians and the surgeon general, that's when they say that also is when that individual in recovery has the same 
uh, odds of becoming uh, um, and, and a, succumbing to an addiction as well. <clears throat> so my point is, it's when somebody goes away, usually it's a good thing because that means that they all have that they can focus entirely on themselves and focus entirely on why they are there. You know, I'm listening to you and I'm internalizing what you're saying. And it, I must say it, it filled me with a bit of sadness to hear you say that the best news you could get is when that person that's been in, in a treatment program says, I'm not coming home. I, because I work literally, I don't think what you're saying is, and so I never want to see you again. There is a difference, not right? Not at all. Not, there is a difference. It's not that I don't want to see you again. Is that my right, or is I don't want to see you again either? No. What it means, and it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit of drama involved in this, but um, what it means is that this person knows that this person has already started a life in a community of other people who are in recovery and want to stay in recovery, and he's already started a whole new life that is going to basically save this person's life. And it's not because he or she doesn't want to be with the family. It's because he or she knows that, he, that if they go right back into from where they came, the chances are good that they're going to return, you know, to using again. It's when they're in another environment, when they start building a new life. They're, they're building a new life. And that, I can't tell you, I, I have... Time and time again, I've seen that happen. And it's a wonderful thing. Because now the person obviously comes home and visits. I mean, and then the family still is a family unit. But what I'm saying is, is that that sometimes, most of the time, it takes that in order for a person to realize that how to uh, gain sobriety, how to live in sobriety, and eventually live in a life of recovery. And it's very, very difficult. Not impossible, of course. People do it. But it's, it really, it's, it's a lot easier or it's a lot more, uh, uh, it's easier to happen, to occur when that person is in a completely new and, and in a completely different environment. So, for instance, How, that person will live in a sober living house, in a sober yes. living environment. He, he's uh -huh. in an environment like him or herself. And that is they are there to help each other maintain sobriety. Do they live there beyond treatment? In other words, is this their residence? <clears throat> well, that, you just brought up a really good question. Um, the, now, these are metrics that are quantifiable. These are proven. When somebody lives in a sober living facility, usually – the stages are like this. When, person goes, when a person goes away to treatment, uh, it, it's really advised, if not necessary, for someone to live in, a, in, a, in an environment where there are other people like him or herself who are in sobriety and want to maintain the sobriety. Mm -hmm. And frequently that takes place in, in a house uh, or apartments that's called sober living. And there are certain rules and regulations that go along with that. That's another conversation. But the 
the Surgeon General and government statistics show that at a minimum of one year is what should be uh, is how long a person should be in a sober living environment before he or she <clears throat> goes off to be you know get his or her own place or live with other people but not mm-hmm. in but not in a, uh, <clears throat> a structured uh, sober living, sober living house. Got it. Right. How, but but when it comes, if somebody stays in sober living for three years, the metrics go dramatically up when it comes to that person being able to maintain sobriety. It's dramatic. Right. Yeah, makes sense. It makes sense because the triggers aren't there. Everybody's on the same page. But that, that doesn't mean that you you doesn't mean that you can't talk to your mom or talk to your dad or talk to oh, your no, wife or not your at husband. All. No, no, okay. no, no, no good, not at all. Good, good, I don't mean it that good. way. I don't mean okay, it that way. I apologize. I well, I'm literal, so not everybody here thinks the same way. But I could just <laughs> say that, you know, um, this is a subject that's so important. And I think starting the year off when, you know, we're looking at maybe making resolutions. Many people do, many people don't. Some people just need to be encouraged to start thinking about their lives in a different way. I think that's why you joining me today, which happens to be just as a side note, January 3rd, if my father and my father-in-law were still alive, it would be their birthday, and my father-in-law was six years older than my dad. Now, they've been gone for many years, but January 3rd is always sort of a day for me on a personal level because of my dad's. Um, but also to just thank you for for what you've been able to do for all these years and being making yourself so available. And I think that that's the other thing that I really respect about you, Walter, is that you, that you are available, that your website, which people need to look at is easily accessible that your book can be purchased on amazon that this could be the beginning of the 2022 year that could start your journey to sobriety to um just living a life that makes you not as worried about your loved one because now there's some tools for you as well so i just i want to thank you for for expressing what you've done and for your passion about what it is you do because it's it's really remarkable, truly. I'm so grateful for this. Well, I very much appreciate your comments. I appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. And uh, one thing I'd like to say in closing, at least from my point of view, from my, from my end, yes. and that is uh, my, if people want to find out more about how they can get help, they can go to my website, which is called the right, R-I-G-H-T, rehab.com. They can also go to Amazon.com and look for my book, The Right Absolutely. Rehab, by Walter Wolf. And, mm-hmm. or they, and on the website, it gives you a way that people can contact me directly. And mm-hmm. one way is also my phone, which is 310-210-4334. And there's mm-hmm. also a toll-free number that's on the website, uh, 855-702-7474. But it's so easy to go to the, 
to go to the website. And I, right. I speak with people individually, and that's what I give everybody individualized service. Well, and, I mean, not many people will just throw that out with their phone number, but I will make sure that when I follow this up, Walter, that I will link your website. I will link the purchase the book. And um, and those have, I hope that not only are people gaining something for themselves, but they may be hearing something going, oh, my God, this is precisely what my loved one, my next-door neighbor, my coworker, whomever, this is a godsend, and I need to let my, that person know as well about what it is that you do. So I want to just thank you once again for, for your passion. Um, it, it's, it's clearly contagious, and, and I, you know, I, I wish you and everyone in your family the very best in this new year as we hopefully come out of some of this isolation we've all been living in and can start to recapture little pieces of our former life where we can, you know, see family and friends. I know for me it was the case. I hadn't seen my son in two years, so it really meant a lot for me to see him over the holidays. So oh, with that in mind, yeah, it was, it was really special. So with that in mind, I will let you get on with your day, my friend. And thank you all for listening, following, sharing. It means a great deal to me that I can do this because I was born to talk. And I do enjoy the opportunity to share what other people feel so important and then sharing that with the people that mean something to me as well. So I'm going to let you go on with the rest of your afternoon. I thank you all for listening. I know this went a little late, but trust me, this could have been a two-hour podcast, but I'm not going to do that. But perhaps I'll have Walter come back later into the year, and we can we can pick up where we left off, Walter. That might be kind of fun as well. So, well, so I thank would love you. that. I would love to talk about insurance, too. There we go. Explain to people yeah. what insurance really is. Yes. All right. Well, until next time, everybody, have a great afternoon, and I'll see you next week. Bye for now.